Welcome back, everyone, to this week's Torah for the Earth audio essay. I'm your host, Charlie Forbes, and this week I will be addressing Parashat Beshalach, which is Hebrew for when he sent out. Before diving into the commentary this week, I'd like to preface this essay by stressing the enormous potential for ecologically based exegesis on this parashah. From the splitting of the Sea of Reeds, Miriam's song of praise, the sweetening of the waters at Mara, the heavenly food of manna, the appearance of quails, the rock that Moshe strikes, and even the significance behind entering the wilderness, these are all events and concepts that one could write a dissertation on. I will add that when conceptualizing the Deep Water Initiative, the nonprofit that my wife and I both run, this parasha and the themes that run throughout were central to our vision and the work we sought to develop for ourselves. In case the name didn't give it away, I am fascinated by the theological significance of water as depicted throughout the Torah and Parashat Beshalach certainly has some awesome moments. In chapter 15, verse 5, which is part of the Song at the Sea, Shirat Hayam, the term Tehomot appears, the plural of the term Tehom. Quote, Deep waters covered them, and they descended in the depths like a stone, the line reads. This is an echoing of the deep waters as described in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and represents the primordial waters of chaos. The eruption into song that occurs by the sea is a poetic celebration of deliverance and a lyric eternalization that marks Israel's miraculous liberation from Egyptian slavery. It represents the collapse of chaos and the introduction of a reality characterized by balance, correction, and the potential for order. It typifies a continuous spiritual progression that, I believe, the earth community needs to maintain as we work our way through various problems. Although water is an element within which destructive forces can be hidden, it also reveals the human responsibility to expose, transform, and then heal those forces, which is a central theme that is driving my work and the work of the Deep Water Initiative. The scale of God's disclosure through nature is representing a spiritual ideal about the culmination of religious understanding. It is a moment in history that links nature to the highest degree of human experience and with the Torah's message. I took a few moments the other day to close my eyes and to have a few deep breaths. I was sitting in a quiet place in my home where I knew I could have some silence and wouldn't be disturbed. I wanted to take a pause so that I could imagine in my mind's eye what it would have been like. What did the air smell like? What did it sound like? How did it feel to be leaving? We are told that over 600,000 able-bodied men left with the Exodus, with a total population close to 3 million people. Can you even fathom what that would have looked like? How many footprints were there in the ground? How many people were talking? (laughs) 
What would I have been thinking as I observed God's presence manifesting as pillars of cloud and fire? During my contemplation, I was also reflecting upon the power and the potential of having three million people together in one place united by a singular cause. We are told that, quote, God turned the Jewish people toward the way of the wilderness, end quote. This is chapter 13, verse 19, in order to place them in a position where they needed to rely on miracles for survival. Rather than heading up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, the Israelites were directed east and then north through the Sinai Desert. This was a bit of a roundabout route to Eretz Yisrael and through a harsh environment, but would ultimately position them to enter the Holy Land from the east bank of the Jordan River. But within a few days of crossing the Sea of Reeds, the Israelites were confronted with two universal issues of survival. How will they drink and how will they eat? The harsh and barren circumstances of the desert were meant to strip the Jewish people of all pretense and lay the foundations of their faith as they are protected on their journey. Somehow, with a backdrop of nothingness and with environmental adversity staring them straight in the face, the children of Israel would have to place the entirety of their trust in God and rely on divine intervention for survival. The journey into the wilderness is premised with the notion that God will provide everything that is needed along the way. This is not to say that the Israelites entered the desert entirely unprepared, as evidenced by the verse, quote, The children of Israel were armed when they went up from Egypt, end quote. This is chapter 13, verse 18. Commentators note that this is the Torah's way of teaching us that we should conduct ourselves naturally and not jump into situations with reckless abandon. If necessary, God will intervene, but otherwise we should carry on in a sane and rational way. Regarding the carrying of weapons, Rabbi Hirsch states, quote, It was not the sword at their side that was lacking, but the heart underneath that failed, end quote. This comment was made within the context of a potential war with the Philistines, which may have occurred if the Israelites had traveled on the more direct route to the land. But it is pointing to a process that the Jewish nation must undergo as they are preparing themselves for the giving of the Torah at Sinai, and it is a lesson that is repeated every year with the counting of the Omer. This process begins with a water crisis and a shortage of food, which are the most fundamental and basic prerequisites for survival. When bitter water is encountered, Moshe tosses in a piece of wood, which some say was magic, while others say was homeopathy. Later, everyone complains and panics again when the Israelites encamp at Rephidim, where no water was found. Moshe is instructed to, quote, Take some of the elders of Israel, and in your hand take your staff with which you struck the river. You shall strike the rock, and water will come forth from it, and the people will drink. This is chapter 17, verse 5. Rephidim, this place name is from a verb meaning to help or to support, which is exactly what occurs when God produces manna, 
that rains down from the heavens. In the morning, it's collected and baked, and quails are eaten for the evening meal, with double portions collected before the Sabbath. But if you take more than you need, the food rots and becomes infested with worms. This is nature's way and God's way of telling us that we will be provided for so long as we don't take more than we need. In the academic field of religion and ecology, there is a subdiscipline known as ecofeminism. To explain this field of study quite quickly, it is based upon the premise that, leading up to the scientific revolution, we transitioned from an organic to a mechanic philosophy of nature, and that this was a dominating metaphor that comprehensively influenced many spheres of life. This is a phenomenon explored in great detail by Carolyn Merchant in her book The Death of Nature, which evaluates the association between cultural values and conceptions of nature. Most importantly, attitudes towards women and nature have historically been linked through language and culture. We are all familiar with the term Mother Earth, and nature as a living organism is often associated with the idea of the feminine. Ecofeminism serves to bridge ecological concerns with our modern perceptions of gender, which have both been distorted and dominated by a male worldview. I mention this because many modern scholars conclude that the Song at the Sea was created and performed by women. The Mechilta, which is a compilation of scriptural exegesis that is classified as a form of halachic midrash, teaches us that there were, quote, only ten songs from the beginning of creation to the end of the scriptural period, end quote. The commentary continues. In the normal course of events, we fail to perceive the hand of God at work and we often wonder how most of the daily, seemingly unrelated phenomena surrounding us could be part of a divine, coherent plan. Rarely, however, very rarely, there is a flash of insight that makes people realize how all of the pieces of the puzzle fall into place. At such a time, we can understand how every note, instrument, and participant in God's symphony of creation plays its role. The result is song. For the Torah's concept of song is the condition in which all of the apparently unrelated and contradictory phenomena do indeed meld into a coherent, merciful, comprehensible whole. End quote. In this respect, Song is a very unique and rare distillation of human experience into a melody, which preserves something very special. The women understood this and took it upon themselves to carry instruments, small hand drums, out of Egypt in anticipation of such a moment. I only wish to suggest that I think we should be talking about this more that their insight into the symphony of creation is of a rare order, distinct but not separate from men. Songs are living history, an imprint of the highest expression of humanness, 
which is a reality that women nurture, carry, and preserve. Somehow this is connected to an organic conception of nature and a sensibility about the world that is always moving, always changing, always living. Somehow, in this poetic account of victory over the Egyptian army, there is a wisdom about how to combat a mechanistic view of the universe. But, at least for now, I don't have the words. But then again, maybe that's why we have a song. Thank you all for listening. That's all for now, and I'll catch you next week. <laughs>